Action Faction, what is up? It is Hamza and you are listening to another episode of Ideas Into Action. Our guest today is Declan Edwards, a thought leader in the field of happiness and the founder of BU Happiness College, an award-winning social enterprise that is growing global happiness. As an avid believer in the potential of people, Declan has seen firsthand that when people are equipped with the strategies to manage their minds and master their emotions, they make a positive impact not only in their own lives, but also in the lives of those around them. It is this impact that he is passionate about spreading. As a published author, podcast host, and keynote speaker, Declan is actively bringing the skill set of happiness back to the people and creating a world where people can thrive. When he isn't working, You'll either find him hiking and spending quality time with his wife and their two dogs, or you'll find him playing either country music or acoustic covers of R&B classics on his guitar. In this episode, and man, I am loving all of these episodes that we've been doing for this new season of the podcast, but this one was really special because it was, and I said this twice, at least twice in the episode, truly divinely aligned. And there was so much synchronicity between what Declan is working on and studying and where his career is going and identical beats in my own life. So it was really surreal. We talked about mortality, the link between love and happiness, country music versus R&B, hedonic versus eudaimonic happiness, ego death, transcending GDP as a measure of success, color coding calendars, and making decisions that align with our head, heart, and gut. Man, oh man, I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode. Let's just jump right in. Ideas into action, action faction. We are back with Declan Edwards. Declan, man, welcome to the podcast. How are you, mate? And I am well, and thank you so much for having me. We were saying just before recording, this has been a, a while in the making, but it's nice how it's come to fruition, and uh, I'm very excited to see where this conversation leads. Same here. I'm a little scared. I'm not going to lie. I look at the portfolio of work that you have grown, that you are managing, and it feels eerily similar to my own. I feel like we're brothers from another mother, and you are the second guest from down under. Wow, I feel like I could have rhymed that. That that had potential to be a rhyme. Brother from another mother, down under. Uh, last In the last episode, we had Jesse McGuire, fellow friend, mutual friend of ours, and now we have you, and I'm just so honored. But you know, I, I look at your portfolio of work, and like I said, it's eerily similar to my own, and I wonder if you feel the same way about mine. I'm going to have to really try hard in this episode, as I mentioned just before we started recording, to not get lost in how how uncanny our careers are. And I think one way to do that is by starting with what will hopefully be a very different origin story than mine. I want to start with some bookends over here and really understand where Declan began and where Declan might end. So the first question I have for you, sir, as a kid, who did you dream of becoming? <laughs> Man, I was the kid who went through every three months you asked him who he wanted to be when he grew up and the answer was different. I went through, I was going to be a jet pilot. You know, I'm from a long line of military in the family. My father's just retired from 38 years of service. Uh, My grandfather, police officer, his father, military. So that's the path that I was going to be on. Then I started playing basketball semi-competitively throughout my teenage years and thought I was going to be in the NBA or make it to the NBL. You know, I went through, I watched Jurassic Park and decided I was going to be a paleontologist. I could spell that word at six years old. And it was like I was always looking for, I guess, a a mentor or a role model and and seeing these figures and going, maybe that's the path I will go down. 
Damn, you know what? I already failed. We had the exact same childhood. <laughs> As you were saying that, I'm like, yep, basketball player. Yeah, Jurassic Park inspired paleontologist, correct? Okay, I don't. my family doesn't come from a long line of military, but I grew up on G.I. Joe and I lived in the United States. I was surrounded by the military imagery. Amazing, man. And, you know, look, clearly not none of those career paths have panned out for either of us. Yep. But for the best, I mm. believe, for the best. Now, that's where it began for Declan. Help me understand where you think it's going to go. And I want to challenge you. In, in the past, I've asked guests to imagine a fictional scenario of a Lifetime Achievement Award ceremony where mm. someone like myself is up there reciting all of your career and life accomplishments as you walk down the stage ready to accept this award. Declan, mate, we're going to take it to the nth degree. Mm. It's going to be a bit dark, but I know you can hang. Just imagine you're six feet deep. Right? We're at your funeral, mate. And it's a joyous occasion. I'm just going to put this out there. It's a celebration of life. What are some of the things that you would hope would be said about you in your eulogy? Mm-hmm. And take a second if this is a bit of a heavy question. No, I think it's a really valuable question. Funnily enough, I've just finished an amazing book called Mortals by two Australian researchers who are okay. understanding our relationship with death and mortality. And it I'm prompted in. a lot of these what sort is. of questions and these sort of reflections um, in and of myself, I think the first thing I'd really aspire towards and, and, and hope for is that it could be said that I made an impact and a contribution to growing global happiness. And, and what do I mean by that in terms of making it something you know less conceptual and more tangible? I look at things like contributing to a more proactive, tangible, intentional approach to helping individuals support their mental and emotional well-being. In Australia, we have a very reactive, diagnosive approach. Obviously, today we're recording, it's Are You Okay Day in Australia. It's very awareness-driven as an organization and as a movement. And I think awareness is important. I think we did a really important move over the last decade of building awareness of mental health and well-being, but we now need to be moving into the action phase of that and complementing these awareness-based campaigns with, well, what are we actually doing to improve it rather than just talking about it? So I'd look individually. I'd hope that in some way I've made a contribution to the happiness and well-being of our workplaces and our organizations. You know, we spend a massive chunk of our lives at work. So the potential for those environments to either have a positive impact on happiness or a negative impact on happiness, not only on their staff, but as a ripple effect to their staff's families, their communities that they serve, is huge. And then lastly, I'd, I'd really hope that it could be said that I made some form of impact to uh, happiness on a national scale. I look at countries like Bhutan and the Scandinavian countries, even Canada has been talking about this, the idea of gross mm-hmm. national happiness. Yo, and so measuring yeah. happiness as a, as a measurable performance indicator of our success as a nation, rather than just looking at GDP. And Absolutely. this year marks the very first year in Australian history that Australia has started having that conversation. I'd like to think wow. that I've played a role in accelerating that conversation. There's no doubt about that. And I'm telling you right now that this conversation, I mean, we're just a couple of minutes into this. You've really put the battery in my back. You've inspired me to speak more loudly about this idea that we need to transcend GDP. It hasn't worked. I mean, it did work to get us to where we are right now, but it's, it's proving increasingly counterproductive. I remember reading about the Ministry of Happiness in Saudi Arabia a couple of years ago, and I, I factored that into my book, The Burnout Gamble, and I thought to myself, wow, man, if they can do it, like, why can't we? And um, 
we've been finding different ways to say the same thing, which is so, so fascinating to me. Again, my, my responsibility here is going to be to not drift too much, but you talked about reading this book, Mortals. Could you give me the authors, by the way, for, these, for, for this book? Yes, I might quickly have to look them up to make sure I get them right. Um, uh, I know Dr. Menzies, it's actually really interesting. It's a father and son. Oh, sorry, father Amazing. and daughter, my bad. Father and daughter um, book of, uh, you know, work of art, I yeah. call it. Uh, so Rachel E. Menzies and Ross G. Menzies, uh, both Perfect. psychologists who basically started pondering this idea of their hypothesis is that the root of a lot of human challenge and struggling is our own rejection of our own mortality. And Dude. one of the studies they, they put in the book, which was fascinating, was they asked people on a scale of 1 to 10, how aware are you that yeah. death is a, is a part of life? And people were like, oh, <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. And they rated it 9 or 10. And then they went, okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much would you think that it's, like, that it's going to happen to you or your loved ones? Right. And they rated it down at six or seven. And so there's this weird discrepancy where on some level as a species, we go, yeah, I know that death's a reality, but I don't think it's going to happen to me or my loved ones. Yeah, we and form so we come, bulwarks and buttresses against it, right? Exactly. We, we come up with these constructs. They talk a lot, the whole first chapter is on religion, and they talk about the self-esteem movement. They talk about works of art. They talk about wow. all these things wow. that human beings do in the pursuit of immortality when some of the best things that we can do for our own happiness, our own well-being, our own growth, our own contentment and meaning and purpose in life is to reach some level of neutral acceptance. So when you pose that question of like, you know, what's the eulogy say? I was like, this is actually very familiar to me at the moment. It's something I've been pondering myself for the last few months after reading that book. Dude, I'm, I'm getting chills, man, because I've been on a similar path. I've been reading a lot of literature around uh, mortality. I think I wonder if in this book, Mortals, they reference the work of uh, Ernest Becker. Yes, correct. There we yeah. go. Okay, so I've been I've been on an Ernest Becker bender. I've read uh, Sheldon Solomon's Worm at the Core, mm -hmm. and it has sent my world into a tailspin. I'm like, wow, all of these immortality projects that you alluded to mm -hmm. that uh, seem to be the reason why there's gross inequality in the world right now, suffering, why people are experiencing varying levels of poverty, ignorance, and vulnerability are because of these asymmetrical immortality projects. And um, it's led me to the conclusion, and I, I, I've resisted saying this out loud, but again, conversations like this are really important because I think we're saying the same thing. I'm talking about in my work and my research and my speaking and writing and all that, um, love, non-platonic love as the thing that workplaces need. And you're coming at this from happiness. And I really think, honestly, we're, we're saying the exact same thing with two different words, which again, I'm... There's a part of me that's like, it, the answer can't be that simple. But then I see you and I see the success that you're having, having with your work, with your life. And I'm like, no, man, he's absolutely right. Like, BU Happiness uh, uh, College's success is very much a testament to this idea that the way that we have designed society, the way that our systems have operated thus far and might be teetering on the brinks of collapse, they're in need of something that's uniquely human, profoundly human. But we're resisting that for some reason. We seem to be resisting this idea that it could be so simple. Why do you think that is in, in the work that you've been doing? Why have people been hesitant to accept this um, you know, mantra of, of being happy at work, the possibility of being happy at work? Yeah, it's a really good question. I want to touch on, before I answer that question, even the idea of happiness and love. It's interesting hearing that that's the angle you've been coming from. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with there was a study, I'm forgetting who did it, it was quite a few years ago, 
But they basically just ask people to write down what's something you want in life. Like what's a goal? Anything. Like yeah, I want to buy anything. a house. I want to change jobs, whatever. And you get this answer and they go, yeah, but why do you want that? And it goes mm-hmm. down another level. And they go, yeah, but Coins. why do you want that? Right, go down. Right, why right. do you want that? Why do you want that? And they just keep digging. What they found is regardless of age, gender, background, cultural experience, you know, uh, generation, it would always end on one of two answers. And it's, again, I'm kind of getting chills having this conversation now because the two answers they'd always end on were happiness and love. There you go, like man. Everything we're seeking to serve and pursue. And I want to clear up maybe for the, for the audience, because I know this is a question that gets asked a lot. When I talk about happiness, I'm not just talking about hedonic happiness, which is the joyous, yes. yellow, smiley face emoji, sure. you know, high elation, right. dopamine driven comes and goes. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. But sure. what's more important, I would argue, is this idea of eudaimonic happiness. So contentment, meaning, purpose, mm-hmm. contribution, yes. right? It's more of a steady state wow. happiness. And I think it's a, a probably more akin to, to, and again, even then when we look at love, there's all the variabilities of love, you know, as you said, non-platonic you know, platonic, there's different types of love and expressions of it. But if we just take those two terms, happiness and love, to answer your question, why have we been so resistant as a society to go, hey, maybe those are actually the answer and the solution? My theory on this, what I've seen working with individuals around Australia and overseas, what I've seen working with workplaces to to prioritize and measure and, and build this, is that people often view happiness and love as the outcome of something rather than the precedent to something. Mm. So it's this idea of, in mm. happiness research, we call it the hedonic treadmill. I'll be happy when. When, yes. And we go, right. when the business is doing more, when we're doing X amount of profit, when we have X market share, then we'll finally yeah. be happy. It's an what end we, state that's achieved exactly, after. Exactly, rather okay. than it being a competitive advantage to nurture first. So we yeah. know from the work of great researchers like Sean Aker, who wrote The Happiness Advantage, this idea of like, hang on, fostering happiness at the start of that journey and throughout that journey actually makes us more likely to have great health, have great relationships, run a successful business and organization, be a great leader. Like the things that we pursue thinking it will bring us happiness are actually better served by happiness. So I think we've had the equation the wrong way around for many years. What man. Okay. Wow. 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 What, what were some of the milestones in your life or your career that brought you to this work? That, that aligned you with this theory and the expression of it through BU? I think if I look back on my journey, and this is a continual journey for me, like I regularly say, well, just because I'm a happiness researcher and I run a happiness college doesn't mean I've got everything worked out. <laughs> it's, <laughs> this is an ongoing journey. But if I look through sure, the man. last, I'd say 10 years, let's go the last decade. The big starting point for me, the big tipping point was as I alluded to before, I was the kid who always pursued other people's ideas of success. Right. I'd see these role models and go, oh, well, that's what a successful and happy life looks like. That's what I'm going to do. And what I increasingly found is although I was able to achieve quote unquote success in those things, I felt really empty and unfulfilled. I, I look back on it now and I describe those years of my life almost like being a human chameleon. Like I could play the role of whatever people wanted to me, but as a result, I'd lost touch of myself. And this fortunately led to one of my first mentors, um, a, a great man by the name of Sebastian Terry, who was my first kind of example of someone living a life very true to themselves, very authentic to himself. And I asked him for advice. I asked him originally, tell me what you're doing and I'll copy it. And he goes, no, no, no this is my blueprint for a happy and successful life. You need to come up with your own blueprint for a happy and successful life. I can help. 
ask the right questions for that. I can nurture you. I can coach you. I can guide you. But I don't have your answers. You have your answers. And that was quite profound for me. Even today, we call, you know, the Happiness College BU, the letters BU. It's because I think that is the truest version Ah. of ourselves, right? I know. Most people, the light bulb moment where they get it, they're like, of course, (laughs) right? When we're able to be authentically, confidently, compassionately ourselves and live a life that aligns with our personal definition of a happy and successful life, I think that's the greatest gift we can give not only ourselves, but the world around us. So that was a huge tipping point for me. And that came at a pretty pivotal time. I was struggling with disordered eating at the time. I was in and out of hospital. I was 60 something kilos at my height. I was very unhealthy and unwell. And what it all boiled down to was I was on that Hadoi treadmill of, I'll be happy when I have the six pack. I'll be happy when I'm financially successful. I'll be happy when, 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 when. And so it was really, really powerful to have someone go, hey, let's change that script. Let's start looking at how do we be happy now and who we are now and yes, still have goals to move towards, but make sure that they're true to you. So that was, that's what set me on this path originally. That was the biggest tipping point. Incredible. And and this is going to be new for a lot of listeners, Declan. And if you could just, just redefine what those two types of happiness are real quick. The yeah. hedonic treadmill, and then the other one was the eudaimonic treadmill? Yeah. So there's hedonic happiness, which is okay. from a Greek term, hedonism. The best way to think of this, these are the Greeks that loved drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Um, <laughs> you know, they thought the path to a happy life was acquire as many enjoyable experiences as possible. Yeah, um, live like a rock star, basically. Exactly, right? Go hard, <laughs> get your dopamine fix. Um, and I think a lot of our society in some way has been shaped by that, right? When we look around and we go, a lot of the ways people pursue Happiness is through status, material possessions, you know, sure. uh, accumulating a big following online, all these dopamine-driven yeah, yeah, things. Absolutely. And look, I'm not going to rubbish hedonic happiness. I think it's a useful, I like to call it the cherry on top of the happiness cake. Don't build all your happiness around it, but it's okay to top up every now and again with doing something that's genuinely exciting and enjoyable and right. pleasurable, right? Maybe even raise your ceiling from time to time. Exactly, Right. On the other side is this idea of eudaimonic happiness, again, Greek philosophy, this idea of eudaimonia, which is more the Stoicism movement came out of this. So the idea of, you know, happiness is not achieved in in pleasurable activities, but in activities of virtue. I'm butchering that quote by Aristotle. But this idea of let's look at happiness in the form of meaning, contentment, purpose, connection. And that's where we'd more see senses of calm, you know, that more steady state happiness, it doesn't spike as quickly, but it doesn't go away as quickly either. It's more driven by serotonin and oxytocin and, and not this dopamine spike. So personally, and again, I don't have everyone's answer to this. You need to figure out your own one. But for me, I find a happy sweet spot is if I'm putting about 80% of my focus into cultivating and nurturing eudaimonic happiness as my baseline. And then I'm topping mm-hmm. up with these 20 percenters these nice little like pleasure driven moments. Sure. That's a very happy life for me. That's, that's, that's remarkable. And that, that has inspired me to take an inventory of what my happiness looks like on a day-to-day basis, what falls into what category. And I imagine that there's some tinkering that needs to be done so I can produce more eudaimonic, long-term, calm, sustainable, tranquil happiness. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know. So with the work that you do with BU Happiness College, what are some of those things that fall into the 20% category of the, um, of the hedonistic or, 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 or yeah, the hedonistic happiness. What are some of the things that, you know, perk you up and, and get you fired up, but 
might be a little more fleeting? And then what are some of the things that fall into the other category that connect with your sense of purpose? If I look more on the hedonist side, funnily enough, connected with, you know, one over the last week, travel is a big hedonistic one for me. And yes, you could yeah. argue there's a degree of eudaimonic meaning and purpose in terms of being exposed to more cultures, ex- you know, ex- broadening your perspective. But I think for me, I just get a lot of excitement and joy and dopamine, not even just from traveling. I'm talking about the act of even planning a holiday. And my wife and I are planning a trip to India at the moment and we're no just feeding on each other's energy and excitement sure, man. Yeah, right? yeah. from just the planning process. So that's definitely one that is more, you know, that, that hedonic one. I think to a degree as well, even things like, you know, I play basketball still. I got back into it as a social sport hey. and having that healthy competition drive, rallying yep. as a team, you know, winning. You know, it's a social competition that means nothing. But when we win, you get that real rush of like, yes, we're of unstoppable. Course, <laughs> and so I think that's quite a healthy Hedonic. What I've been mindful of in myself is hedonic happiness can be quite addictive and so it can lead very, very quickly. It's a slippery slope. If we're mm-hmm. building all our happiness around it, it's very easy for it to lead to a lot of addictions we see around right. alcohol, drug abuse, um, even social media and technology being quite yeah. addictive, pornography, you know, these things that yeah. we know are quite strong vices. I think the difference there is, again, are we gambling our happiness on hedonic? Because if so, we're more likely to get stuck in that. And is it intentional or is it habitual? So I try to be really intentional wow. with my hedonic happiness activities. If I flip blends and look at the eudaimonic side, you know, I think obviously I, I get a lot of meaning and purpose through our work that we do. Like we're set up as a social enterprise. I really believe in creating social organizations and movements that stand for something bigger than themselves. Um, learning how to be a better leader as we've grown in size and, and built a team around this movement has so much meaning and purpose to me. The depth and quality of relationships I've noticed even as I've gone through my 20s, I've noticed my, my sphere of uh, connection and relationships has in some ways narrowed, but the depth of them has really strengthened. And so I get a lot of eudaimonic contentment, meaning purpose out of those smaller connection of relationships, but more meaningful ones. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Beautiful, man. I, I'm very curious to know, and I know the listeners are as well, how it was that you were able to design a life and a career for yourself that are producing all of these very desirable outcomes. And I'm almost tempted now to actually ask one of the questions that I've been asking guests at the end, which is to pay forward some advice that they received from their mentor. But what you heard from Terry was to build your own blueprint. And so mm. maybe I might just nix that question altogether and really yeah. understand that what people should get from this podcast, what the action faction, the community listeners should get from this podcast are little tidbits, pieces of uh, inspiration, nuggets of inspiration on how they might be able to emulate what it is that you have been doing. Uh, even if you know they're not emulating fully and they're just taking the, the, the best of and, and interpreting their version of your process, which we'll get into in a second. I really want to go deep into how you structure your time, your energy, your attention, how you've built this very successful business and a career that allows you to do all of the things that you're doing right now. But before we get into that, we're going to take a fun little detour, my friend, and go into a quick time segment. Now, I've been terrible at keeping these answers contained. I like to elaborate on each and every single one of them. So forgive me if my attempt at being disciplined comes across as cold. It's not personal. I will give you a bunch of choices or simple single answer questions. And whatever comes to mind first, my man, give us that answer. You ready to rock? Let's do it. It'll be great. Okay, we're coming in hot. Country music or R&B? Country, oh, only recently changed though. Asked me two years ago, R&B, now country. 
All right, uh, I have to stray from the discipline over here and ask why. What was the artist? What was the song that took you from R and B to country? Zach Brown Band, Chicken Fried, was my country gateway drug. That and yeah. Wagon Wheel by Darius <laughs> Rucker. Those are my two entry points. But I worked in, hey. I lived and worked in Texas for a month and a half in 2019, and really experienced the country music scene there. I actually now play country music, um, love it as as a hobby, and I also play acoustic covers of R and B. So again, it's a tough tough choice. That is that is so funny, man. And and rumor has it that you might be relocating to Dallas, so you, you're going to have access to a community and and an audience over there that will receive your love of country music and and your playing of it quite well. We could talk. We could do a whole other podcast on just country music as well. I'm a big fan. I must say, I, I could sing chicken fried start to finish right now. If you bust out a guitar, we could do a <laughs> duet. Okay, then I must ask the last song you played on repeat. Oh, currently. Um, I have been playing a new song by Noah Khan um, called, what is it called? I just looked it up this morning. It is called In the Sticks, Stick Season. Noah Khan, Stick Season. Stick Season. And is it uh, the German Khan or is it uh, Hamza Khan Khan? Uh, K-A-H-A-N. Khan. Oh, interesting. I didn't know we could spell it that way. Love it, man. All right. This is going to be tough. I wonder how you can answer this. Happiness or fulfillment? Mm, I see them as one and the same. I think, again, right. if we look at eudaimonic happiness being more the fulfillment part, but even then I'd argue that true fulfillment is a, is a healthy blend of eudaimonic and hedonic. Gotcha. Oh. We can't get to fulfillment without happiness. I concur, sir. Inspired by a recent Instagram post of yours, memories or experiences? Oh, <laughs> oh. Got it. Well, to get memory, I suppose it's present versus past, right? Experiences True. create the memories to revisit. I'm a sucker for memories. I love nostalgia. I love being able to look back on things that I've experienced or done in my life and relive that experience. So I might hedge a little bit towards memories at the moment. Got you. The better platform for building and expressing your personal brand, Instagram or TikTok? <sighs> I'm going to show my age here and go, I prefer Instagram personally. Same. <laughs> um, the younger generation is going to be shouting at me right now saying I'm missing That's out. They, they all just shut off the podcast at this point. They're like, <laughs> oh man, it's two boomers, even though we're both yeah. like cusp millennials. Okay. Uh, this is, uh, I wonder how you're going to answer this. I don't, I don't even know how I would answer this. Writing a book or delivering a keynote? Keynote for me. I've huh. I've done both. I'm a yep. published author for many years ago, but do a lot more keynotes. I've found over the years that I express myself, I think, a lot more impactfully through spoken word and oration than through writing. Um, writing's definitely been a learned skill of mine that's not as natural. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd lean keynote. Very interesting. The accomplishment you're most proud of? Professional. Professional accomplishment I'm most proud of? Because personally, it was getting married, right? So yes, that's the correct answer. answer. Just, just, just got to be clear, man. <laughs> I think professionally, 2018, end of 2018, start of 2019 was our, I call it almost the ego tearing apart phase of my growth and of BU's growth. Right. I'd constructed a lot of identity around this idea of being a successful you know, social entrepreneur and building it up sure. and yada, yada. And we, to give a little backstory, I know we're on a quick time limit on these no, questions, but keep going we, um, 
we'd done our first international retreat. We took a bunch of our college members, freshman, sophomore year members across to Africa to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. So the highest mountain in Africa. Um, I went into that quite cocky and arrogant two years earlier. I'd climbed to Everest base camp. I was like, I got this, this is fine. I'm leading the group, you know, all these things I thought about myself and came in very underprepared. And then on summit night, uh, it was the hardest experience of my life by far. I remember lying face down in the dirt close to summit, just in tears and altitude does weird things. I was so ambivalent to my own life at that point. I remember saying my wife was there with me. I remember saying, go on without me. I'm just going to lie here. And our guide was saying, if you lie here, you'll die. Like you need to get off this mountain. And I was like, I don't care anymore. And that's not me. It was just altitude really hit hard. Sure. And so that was a really just core shaking experience. I've done a lot of work to unpack the, the trauma and the challenge that came up from that. Then I came back from that experience. We got off the mountain three days later, flew home and found out that, you know, the company that I was so proud of was losing $3,000 a week and was six weeks from bankruptcy. And realized that I had all these ideas of me being a successful leader and I hadn't actually set up my team for success to run it whilst I was away. I hadn't built the structure to make it sustainable without me and I paid the price for it. So I've gone through this personal ego death on the mountain that really shook who I believed I was. I then went through this personal ego death pretty well immediately afterwards and the challenge is, funnily enough, one of my mentors now, Jack Delosa, I was just at a conference with him and he said, the times when we most need to grieve and heal as business owners and visionaries are often the times when we're least able to take them. And that hit home for me. Like I went through the roughest six months of my life after that to rebuild the organization, to get it back to, to profitable, to get back to sustainable, to get the right team around me. I had to do a lot of work on myself to change again, a lot of the ego and, and falsely inflated self-confidence that I'd built up um, and do some really deep work on who I was. Wow. So the thing I'm most proud of professionally is like that six months. I look back on that now and go, that fundamentally changed myself, our team, our organization. And I think it changed it for the better, but it was, it was damn hard. Dude, wow. First of all, thank you for sharing that, for being vulnerable on this podcast. And hey, I, I've been right there with you, man. The ego got in the way of my first business splash effect where it became a vehicle by the end to prop up my personal brand. And that's when the company was at its worst. I remember crying myself to sleep, talking to my co-founder, being like, how did we end up in a situation where we can't afford to pay our staff right now? Like, how the, how do we fuck up so badly? Mm-hmm. And I had to look inwards. I had to look at where I was diverting time, energy, and attention, and t- hard resources even away from the organization. Very self-serving. And uh, it was a tough lesson for me to learn. So for you to share that is very validating. I'm able to see a very traumatic period of my life reflected in your sharing that story. And I hope that this is going to be eye-opening for other entrepreneurs and leaders listening to this podcast. Please, I mean, take it from Declan, take it from myself. Like Leadership, it really has to be about other people. It has to be about the organization. It has to be about diminishing your ego and setting up an organization that can run without you, which is so counterintuitive to hear as a young leader. That flies in the face of everything we think leadership and entrepreneurship is going to be. Dude, two questions for you. Number one, have you turned that into a keynote yet? That story about <laughs> ego death on the side of a mountain? Funnily enough, I was just writing it the other day about the okay, idea of perfect. resilience in business. and. Yeah, Amazing. sharing that story. I, I'm right now in the process of shoring up my own stories and the framework that I'm using. I have this book behind me called, um, uh, geez, I, I just know it as a program that I'm going into called Immersions with Gail Larson. 
I don't remember the name of the book. So sorry, Gail, if you're listening to this, but it's all about finding the original medicine, the part of your uh, story that is triumphant. And when I heard you say that story, my my sort of radar went off. I'm like, oh my God, keynote, signature keynote, signature keynote. So I'm so happy that you're doing that. And then part two is, are you going to turn that into a story for the next book? Yeah. So funny yes. enough, I've been planning out <laughs> two books at the moment. I've been planning out what, well, and the books are somewhat on hold. I'm planning out one on on happiness and the science of happiness, blend of the research and my own personal journey through that, and one um, on more looking at, at workplace and organizational happiness. The big project right now is I'm, I'm midway through my master's thesis on workplace happiness. So that's the next 18 months of writing is the, uh, Crazy, the thesis, man. and then potentially the book will come after that. <laughs> Crazy, because I'm in the same process right now with workplace love. This is wild, man. I, I, this, 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 these conversations are very divinely aligned. So first of all, congratulations on learning that lesson. That's a very difficult lesson to learn. And you learned it in a very cinematic way, which you have the presence of mind to dovetail into a keynote and a book as well. And I can't wait to uh, read the book. And hopefully I'll have the privilege of seeing you deliver this keynote sometime. But I totally forgot we're in the middle of quick time, which has become anything but quick, but all this was needed, man. A few more questions and we'll go right back into the long form stuff. So mm-hmm. you have two beautiful dogs. And yes. I hate to ask you this question, but which of the two annoys you the most? Oh, Daisy, 100%. The newest one. <laughs> there's, no, there's no hesitation. She's, I love her, but she's got so much attitude. This is our little rescue dog. She's a little staffy golden retriever. Um, very needy, but very lovable. There we go. And, and just in case your wife is hearing this and disagrees with you, uh, an attribute of Daisy that you love the most. <laughs> oh, simultaneously, her sass. Like, she has yeah. so much attitude. And it's kind of endearing, but it's also very frustrating. <laughs> Love it. Shout out, shout out to Daisy. Um, you, you, you've mentioned that uh, you know hiking is one of one of the things that you're doing when you're not building the business. And, and you alluded to um, two climbs just now, Kilimanjaro, and I forget the other one real quick. I'm so sorry. Everest Base Camp. Everest. Yeah, there we go. Everest Base Camp. Only the two biggest mountains in the world, right? Uh, <laughs> K2 as well. Uh, what would you rather hike, the Inca Trail or the Great Wall of China? So I've done part of the Great Wall of China, um, which is really exciting. And I have the Inca Trail booked in for December next year. So 2024, my wife and I are taking three months off running the company. Um, It's going to be our next big tipping point test of from where we'd gone and it almost failed. So the India trip I alluded to earlier, we're taking three weeks off February, March 2024 to see how the company goes without me for three weeks. It's going to be the first time I've taken three weeks off since the experience of Africa. Um, So I think it's going to be quite a healing experience for me. We've got the right team around us now. My general manager and COO, Josh, is phenomenal. You've met Josh uh, on our podcast yes. together. But mm-hmm. then, you know, after that trip, the big one is uh, when I finish my master's thesis, I turn 30 at the same month and we're going to take three months off to go backpack through South America. So Inca Trail is booked in. Ah, oh, dude, I'm I'm so excited. I will be following your adventure uh, very avidly. On, on Instagram, because you're not going to broadcast it on TikTok. It'll happen on Instagram. No, it'll be Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Dude, two more questions. The last book you read that made you say, wow. Fiction, Breathless, um, okay. which was a murder mystery set ironically on a high altitude mountain. Um, <laughs> and uh, nonfiction, Mortals, the one we were talking about earlier, really okay. hit home okay. for me. And we'll include all of this in the show notes in case you're listening to this, trying to keep up. So the last question for you, Declan, you have rocked this quick time segment. I'm, I'm so proud of you, man. What is the one podcast 
that you're subscribed to that is the least like the others that you're subscribed to? The least like the others. What's the anomaly in your podcast subscription? A lot of people assume that I would listen to a lot of like self-help personal growth podcasts. I don't. I tend to use podcasts more as like a, re, a, a, a de- compress and like a relax okay. and chill out like comedy podcast sports podcast. yeah so i've been really enjoying um a podcast called cancelled produced by mama mia in australia um <laughs> okay. it's very funny it's just a it's a fake hypothetical courtroom where they take celebrities or moments in pop culture that you know are cancelable i say that with air quotes around <laughs> it sure, because it's sure. very much a humor one you know where they're canceling the just yep. rubbish things and talking about these rubbish you know um punishments for them again in air quotes but it's it's quite humorous canceled okay that, that that sounds fantastic as somebody who has binge watched the amber heard johnny depp trial and then went to the alex jones trial i'm like wow okay sign me up man let's uh let, let's go all in on this perfect dude well done I, I i wish i had some sound effects over here maybe evan our producer could right at this moment sneak in some applause sound effects just <laughs> celebrating how well you rocked that quick time segment all right, now we'll we'll take this all the way across the finish line, man. We'll take this into the fourth quarter and uh, go out with a bang and really just try to understand how it is that you design a life, how you manage your time, your energy, your attention, how you actually turn all these ideas that we've covered in the first part of this podcast and convert them into action. So my first question for you, De- Declan, is how exactly do you manage your time? Like what are some of the systems and tools and processes that you have in place that you use to carve out whatever it is that you're doing from the 24 hours you have available to you each day, the 168 hours you have available to you each week? Talk us through that. So I think my top two in terms of like systems and technology to support it, Google Calendar, um, Mm. color coded, but if it's not in the calendar, it's not on my mind, I tend to forget it, Uh, and Trello has been fantastic for me. So a free platform where you can just kind of do a to-do list, get it out of your mind, but you can move things across to where am I doing it today, next week, next month? What's it all look like? We figured out that if you drag it across to complete it, it makes a little like fireworks thing go off. So I get it. So mm-hmm. I get a dopamine rush. I get that little hedonic hit. Um, but those would be the two big systems. Um, if I look Wait. not systems and not tech, I think being intentional about what I put on Trello and in my Google Calendar is a big thing. And the way I do this and the way I encourage people to do this is check in with head, heart, and gut. Now, what I mean by that, most people, myself included, live pretty well predominantly from head. And head is the part of ourselves that looks at the obligations, the to-do list, what am I meant to do, should do, have to do, must do. I like to remind people our, our brain doesn't actually give a shit if we're happy. It cares that we're alive. So it will trade happiness and fulfillment for survival any day of the week. And what that tends to lead to is more pain-driven choices and obligations. And again, it can lead to you going, I'm ticking all these things off. I'm super productive. I'm super successful. Look at me go. I'm a high achiever. But something feels like it's missing. And that's where heart and gut come in. So heart, I tend to check with myself. Simple question. I ask myself in the morning, um, what is one thing my heart is craving from me today? And then I sit in the silence until I get an answer. And whatever it is, I try to prioritize following through on it because it's forming a relationship with myself. It's like, hey, I've asked myself for this today. And if I hear it and go, nah, not today, buddy. Like, how would that sour a relationship with a close loved one? To hear, hey, how can I best support you today? And they tell you and you go, oh, I'm not gonna do it. So for me, I'm like, okay, let's hear it. Most people can't even hear what their heart's needs are. And then go, okay, how can I follow through on it? And then gut instinct I use to make decisions. And the way I do this is, call it God, soul, intuition, 
sure. vibes, energy, whatever you want yeah. to call it. <laughs> but for me, I've found in myself and in a lot of the people who've gone through college, this weird blend of fear and excitement or challenge and freedom. When those two come together, those seemingly opposite emotions, when they come together in equal portions, we call it a green light moment. We've built a theory around it, but you call green light theory. This is the idea that when you pursue the lights in life, you tend to be more fulfilled. And so I kid you not, I've made choices about the company direction using this method. I chose to propose to my now wife with this. I was like, is it equally scary and exciting to propose? Yes, cool, let's do it. Mm -hmm. I've planned holidays with this. I've moved houses. I've sold houses with this. I come wow. back to this gut instinct. What is equally scary and exciting or equally challenging and freeing? That's my green light. Let's not overthink it. Let's do it. So fear and excitement on, in one category and then challenge and freedom in the other? Yeah. So you choose between the two. So sometimes something will be scary and exciting. Sometimes it okay. won't really resonate with fear and excitement. So it's more, okay, it's challenging to me, but it also is quite freeing. Interesting. I have never thought of that grouping um, before. Fear and excitement in one, one category and challenge and freedom on the other. And then using that as a lens to make decisions. That's beautiful. I'm going to experiment with that. You know, it's, it's so, so interesting. I, I think that so sometimes I have to check myself and remember that many people are listening to this podcast for the first time, A, but some people have been listening to, now this is episode 32, and still haven't implemented some of the things that are clearly emerging as patterns over here. So one of the questions I ask all the time, all of our guests is, how do you manage your time? And 32 times out of 32, the answer has been, I use a calendar and it's often color coded. And so I kind of anticipate that question now and I'm like, should I stop asking this question? And then just today I was doing some coaching and somebody was complaining that they were burnt out and stressed. And I asked them how they manage their time. And they're like, I, I, I write things down sometime. And I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah. You know what? I totally forgot. There are a lot of people out there who still haven't figured this out. So I'm really glad that you brought up Google Calendar and color coding. I'm curious to know, let's take a bit of a deep dive. What, what did the colors symbolize or, or what, is, what, is, what does your legend for coloring look like in Google Calendar? So if I look at my Google Calendar, if we were to open it up today, green is anything BU and workplace related. Obviously, it's our branded colors. So it's I've already got that association there. Yep, right. ready to go with it. Uh, yellow is anything relational and like family oriented. And I simply chose that one because my wife, Siobhan, her favorite color is yellow. And so anything where I'm connecting with loved ones, friends, family comes to it's yellow. Uh, anything that's working directly on myself or doing things for my own benefit and well-being is blue. And so what starts to be beneficial about doing this and when people can choose their own sort of way of doing it is if I open my calendar and have a quick glance and all I see is green for the month ahead, I go, whoa, I'm really neglecting my interpersonal relationships and I'm really neglecting my relationship with myself and looking wow. after myself. Wow. And so it's a real snapshot way of going, that needs to change, right? I've started experimenting lately, even with blends of working on myself, a darker blue is more the eudaimonic meaning, contentment, self-care stuff. And the light blue is more the exciting, you know, we've just booked in, I think, 12 concerts in the next like four months that we're oh. going to see for live music. And so they're all light blue and I can look at it and go, look at all these exciting things. Look that at are all these exciting up. things. That's right. fascinating. So I'm, I'm an introvert and I, str I struggle with energy loss all the time. And I think I have the, the worst job for an introvert, which is public speaking, one of the things that I do. So how I color code it, it's really fascinating to hear your system. Mine is about energy loss and being present. Yeah, so anything nice. that's green is replenishing and doesn't require me to be on. It's basically, mm. I can turn my brain off. I can relax. Mm. I don't have to think about me. I can just dissolve. 
So that would include concerts, going to the gym, you know, vacations and whatnot. Yellow is anything travel related that's kinetic. And then we go into the oranges and the reds. The red is like, yo, you got to be dialed in. So this podcast, for instance, is orange. It's I got to be present. I got to be focused and dialed in. I'm going to lose energy. I'm not losing energy right now, but I know that after this podcast is done, when we hit off, I'll be like, holy shit, man. Declan and I, we went back and forth and that took a lot out of me. But it doesn't require the same intensity that you know being on stage uh, does. So that's fascinating, and I've never really thought about happiness as a way to to code to code this. And I'm I'm going to play I'm going to play around with the blues. Okay, very cool. So that's time over there, and you alluded to a little bit about attention. But let's go into energy over here. How do you manage your energy? You have to have a lot of energy to do the work that you do. You run a team. Um, you're constantly winning new contracts, you're executing on them, you're managing other people's emotions, you've, you know, you're, you're married, you've got these two dogs, very active social life, the hiking. It sounds like there's a lot of energy that needs to be managed in the life of Declan Edwards. Talk mm-hmm. us through some of the processes that you have in place to manage and build energy. Mm-hmm. I think the one that served me the best throughout the last decade is looking at the different ways of replenishing energy. And even considering the different warning signs that they're running low. So a lot of people think of energy as one singular tank, like a fuel tank in your car. It's either high or it's low. You've got a warning sign. You need to work on it. What I've realized to myself and in a lot of other people is this idea of this three different tanks. We have our physical energy in our self-care. We have our mental energy in our self-care. And we have our emotional um, mm-hmm. energy in self-care. And the difference is more, you know, the emotional, more heart-led, sort of more you know, uh, how we manage our own emotions, other people's emotions. Mental yeah. is more like that brain fog, that decision fatigue, right? Because yeah. sometimes we get those two confused. Um, and so for me, I've started asking myself over the last years, if I'm, if I'm feeling tired or exhausted, my first question I ask myself is, what kind of tired? Is the mm. warning sign running low on physical? Is it running low on mental? Is it running low on emotional? Like, what is the gap here? And then I try to keep a pretty cohesive self-care plan that makes sure I hit all three. Like, am I doing things to top myself up physically and to nurture myself physically? Am I doing things that challenge and stimulate my brain in a healthy way? Mm-hmm. Am I mm-hmm. doing things that help me decompress and emotionally regulate in a healthy way? That's beautiful, man. I'm, I'm writing a keynote right now about energy and uh, I'm referencing the work of Tony Schwartz of the Energy Project. And he does the same categorizations that you did, mental, physical, emotional. And he adds fourth one in there, spiritual. Mm-hmm. And it's a non-religious spiritual. It's like more mm-hmm. or less the reason why you do things. But I think that that falls into a broader category of happiness and purpose. That's really cool. And I, I like what you said, that we think of our energy as all stemming from the same tank, but there's four different, three or four different tanks that go into this. And I've been feeling a little tired recently, but it's, it's a different kind of tired. It's not physically tired. It's not mentally or emotionally tired. I think it's in the fourth category. It's spiritually, just so much of the information that I'm consuming and trying to understand how we can heal the world and infuse it with love and happiness has been draining in a way that doesn't really affect the work, but sometimes weighs heavily on me. Very cool, man. And you alluded to the answer for my next question about how you manage your attention. You talked about Trello and how you use the head, heart, and the gut as uh, a lens to determine what becomes a priority. What are some other questions you ask yourself or what are some other systems that you have in place to determine what gets Declan's attention? Mm. I think one I've been learning, and I'd say this is still a learning, I haven't mastered it, um, especially as we've grown as a team, learning how to delegate and let go of control and hand mm. things over has been really, really powerful. So some of the questions around that is like, is this my highest and greatest use to our vision and movement right now? And I'm learning to go, some things aren't. 
and that's okay. I also ask, is there someone else on my team who could do this better than me? Which is again, being very good for ego to go, <laughs> actually, yes, there are. And right. I hired them for a reason that's in them across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and some of the other things as well, you know, I'm the kind of guy who still struggles and wrestles with the idea of once you decide something, you know, is beneficial to get done, it should be done yesterday. And so mm-hmm. learning how to pace out time and go, hey, is this actually something that needs to be done right now? Or is this something that can be done a week down the line, two weeks down the line, a month down the line? Um, has been a really valuable question to just, again, help with prioritization. Wow, man. I, I thank you for, for allowing us to, to, to look underneath the hood and see all of the different systems, tools, and processes, and decision-making criteria that goes into the production of Declan Edwards as he appears in the world today. And, and thank you for all the work that you're doing. And again, for, for gifting us insight into how this is done, how it is that you translate these ideas into action, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for someone who wants to follow in your footsteps, adopt some of your practices or emulate your entire career, what advice would you give them? Someone who's listening to this right now thinking, shit, I want to do what Declan's doing. What mm-hmm. advice would you give them? Probably similar, similar advice to what my first mentor, Sebastian Terry, gave me, which is don't. Don't emulate my exact mm. career. Don't follow exactly my footsteps. The world doesn't need another me. What the world wow. needs is you to be you, right? Nice kiss, man. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. That, that you know, on, on first glance, I'm like, damn, that's invalidating the whole purpose of this podcast. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> but at the same time, no, like that, you're absolutely right. Maybe what this podcast does for you, and I've likened this to a train. It's like you hop on, you hop off. You come, yep. you stick around for as long as you need the podcast, and you leave whenever you want. This train is going to keep yep. on going, but it's always here. Maybe you'll get a baseline of information. You'll be able to extract patterns from all the different guests. But ultimately, you're right. The world doesn't need another Declan. It doesn't need another Hamza. It needs you, the person who's mm-hmm. listening to this right now. So take what you can from this and really just make it your own. Absolutely brilliant, man. Thank you. That that has been paradigm shifting for me, truly. Sir, we're uh, we're about we're about to you know uh, disembark from this train right now. We're about to land land this plane. This train's about to arrive in the station. Whatever transportation analogy you want to use. What uh, what's next for you, man? What what are the next stops in your career journey? The big exciting ones. The next eighteen months. There's so much to look forward to finishing my master's thesis on studying workplace happiness, I think is going to be really, really uh, empowering for the work that we're doing in helping mm-hmm. organizations become recognized as happy workplaces and, and employees of choice. I think going away to India for three weeks early next year is going to be paradigm shifting for me in terms of healing my relationship with taking time away from the company. I obviously mentioned earlier, the last time I did that was really, really traumatic and challenging. I've taken breaks since then, but they've always been a week or less. This is the first extended one. Uh, and then the big goal, the big one is the end of next year, taking three whole months away from the organization to backpack South America and to go, let's see how well this thing flies without me in the driver's seat. And I think it's, it's, we're going to win or learn. It's either going to go exceptionally well, or we're going to come back and go, cool, we've learned where the gaps are. Now let's work on them. So either way, it's going to be beneficial. And it's going to be really exciting to watch this journey. I know it's going to go remarkably well for you. There, there's no way that it can't. I think that what you've done with BU Happiness College is you've created a microcosm. You've created the blueprint for how organizations should run. And to that end, um, I read that you offer happy workplace accreditations through BU Happiness College. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, sir. So we've just launched version two of it. Uh, We saw the need for this throughout the pandemic. We We started the college direct to individual and still one of the biggest arms of the college is individuals coming to work on building their 
emotional intelligence and their ability to manage their mind and emotions more effectively. But in 2020, we started having organizations reach out and go, hey, we're having people burn out. We're struggling with culture. We don't know what to do about it. And for us, we kind of went from the lens of, well, what you measure, you can manage. And these organizations aren't measuring the intangibles like culture, workplace well-being, staff engagement, leadership, burnout and turnover risk. And we went, okay, well, what if we build something to give them visibility over that and clarity and take away the guesswork? And so we spent two years in R&D and built a diagnostic report where we can go in and actually gather data and see what they're doing well and what they're not. And if they meet certain benchmarks, we wanted to elevate and lift up the organizations that are doing great things for their team and recognize them with an accreditation as a happy workplace, which in Australia, we have a thing called the Heart Foundation tick for good food. So I've been telling people it's like the Heart Foundation tick, but instead of good food, it's for good workplaces. Um, and it's been really, really rewarding and encouraging to see how how readily that has been received by workplaces and organizations throughout Australia. It's time, man. It absolutely is time. All of my research on burnout has led me to the difficult conclusion that so much of the reason why organization or people are burning out has little to do with their productivity and well-being. It has everything to do with culture and leadership. And if you want to go beyond that, the very systems that bind them together. So much so that I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that at least in the healthcare sector, People aren't burning out. They're on the receiving end of moral injury from very unhappy, unloved workplaces. So it's actually just so deeply validating to know that not only is this idea being echoed in another part of the world so different from where I'm living right now, but it's being done at the highest possible level. It's being well-received. And man, I think you are truly just at the beginning of your journey. I think that People are going to look back at this conversation, but more so at your career and what you've done with BU Happiness College and be like, wow, this guy and this team was decades ahead of where the world needs to go. And to give you an example of that, like, are you familiar with um, Microsoft very recently getting rid of employee engagement as a metric? Did you oh, read no, about this? I'm not. Interesting. So Microsoft ditched employee engagement as a metric and you know what they replaced it with? Employee thriving. Nice. Well, and I read that and I was like, wow. Oh my God, the revolution is about to begin. <laughs> yes. Because even now, as, as we're recording this, you know, you have David Solomon of Goldman Sachs, Jamie Diamond of, uh, I think it's Chase, that are out there and saying all kinds of things that are just reflective of, or emblematic, I should say rather, of, of very unhappy, unloving work environments. They're saying things like working from home is an aberration and, uh, you know, our employees are committing time theft and they should be productive working elsewhere. And I'm like, no, man. If everyone's the asshole, you might be the asshole. <laughs> so <laughs> the, these these are organizations where I they could they could really use a, a an audit. They could use a diagnostic from from BU Happiness College. And I think anybody right now who thinks that they're in an environment that could use some more happiness, I would encourage them to reach out to you and uh, consider enlisting your services. I know this is something I'm going to talk to my wife about with Skills Camp and any clients that I'm willing to are are, are open to this possibility. I would love to make the introduction. And on that note, where can people keep up with you? Where can they find out more about yourself and BU Happiness College? Yes, yeah, so the best places, uh, as we alluded to before, Instagram, not TikTok. Uh, so go <laughs> Instagram, Declan Edwards underscore BU. So just the letters BU or BU Happiness College on Instagram. Uh, same on LinkedIn, search Declan Edwards or BU Happiness College and the website, which www.buhappinesscollege.com. Amazing. Declan, mate, thank you so much. This was a, a very, like I said before, a divinely aligned conversation. I can't thank you enough for gifting us with your time, your energy, your attention, your insight. This I know is a podcast that we will revisit for years to come. And I hope to have you on again very soon, sir.
And I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Amazing. All right, Action Faction. Wow. That was another banger of an episode. I hope you took away from this as much as I did. Like I said, I will be putting all of the references that Declan made. Books, including Mortals, which I'm going to order right after this podcast, will be included in the show notes. If you have any questions for Declan, I will also include all of the links that he suggested, in, uh, including his, his social uh, handles in into the show notes as well. As always, thank you so much for tuning in, for gifting us with your time, energy, and attention. Uh, If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us very glowing reviews. Anything that you can give us will go a long way towards um, helping the podcast reach new listeners and us growing this Action Faction community. So thank you once again. I'm your host, Hamza Khan, and until our next episode, we're out.